Welcome to Deep Pockets by Petra Söderling. A conversation about governments, technologies, and innovation. You're now listening to Season 3 of Winter 2024. I call this season The Book Club. In March 2023, I published my own book, Governments and Innovation, The Economic Developer's Guide to Our Future, which is available in Amazon in paperback, hardcover, and as a Kindle ebook. It's now time to look at some other great books out there that discuss the same theme, how publicly funded technologies turn into privately run innovation, and what happens after that. Our theme song is by New Orleans jazz icon, Leroy Jones. Deep Pockets works in cooperation with Studio Aguse, a boutique recording studio in south of France for audiobooks, podcasts, and music. Today's guest is one of my favorite futurists, David Wood, who actually appeared on the show already in season one, sharing the story of the smartphone. Please go back to season one, episode three, to listen to that fascinating account. In this episode, we're going to discuss the death of death, the scientific possibility of physical immortality and its moral defense, a book by Jose Luis Cordero and David Wood. Welcome back to Deep Pockets, David. Thank you so much, Petra. It's great to be back. First of all, that's an intriguing title. What do you mean by the term, the death of death? It means we today stand close to a remarkable transition between the last mortal generation and the first potentially immortal generation. I guess it means that if people now alive take sufficient care of themselves, they might live long enough to have the chance of living for as long as they like. That's as opposed to the present situation when aging and death come to all of us when we're not ready or willing for that end to our stream of consciousness, our stream of experiences, our rich set of relationships. And on a practical note, what the phrase means is that scientists now have a much better grasp. Accumulated knowledge over the last few decades means they understand the causes of biological aging at the cellular and molecular level as never before. And very importantly, they have good ideas for ways to intervene in our biology to slow and repair and reverse that aging. Yeah, I was quite excited when I was reading the book. Um, okay, what can we learn from nature about aging and death? Because my assumption has been that all living creatures age and then they die. That does seem to be the observation, isn't it? Scientists have got this thing called the second law of thermodynamics, which means that everything eventually falls apart. You get more chaos, the chaos leads to more problems, and yeah, creatures die. And we can see that statistically when you look at the probabilities for people at different ages to die. When we're about 10 years old, we're very healthy, we've got great repair mechanisms, we have to be very unlucky if we where to die in the next 12 months of our lives. It's something like 1 in 10,000 of a chance. 
But by the time we got to the age of 35, that's 25 years more, that chance has grown tenfold. So we still need to be unlucky to die in the next 12 months, but not as unlucky. One in a thousand chance. Add another 25 years and we come to the age of 60, that probability has increased tenfold again to one in a hundred. Another 25 years takes us to the age of 85, and if we're still alive then, the chances that we'll die in the next year have grown again tenfold to one in ten. So, as we become chronologically older, we become exponentially more likely to die, and that's because of the accumulation of damage at that microscopic level, which interferes with our normal repair mechanisms. And the more our repair mechanisms get damaged, the more other damage comes. But the remarkable thing is that not all species have that same exponential increase. There are species that display what's called uh, negligent senescence. Sorry, negligible senescence. They don't become more likely to die as they get older. They remain as fit and as youthful as they were when they were younger. So we could talk, and I think it is fascinating, and it would be fascinating to talk about this at length, though I point your listeners to books where this can be covered in more detail. We could look at the so-called naked mole rat, which lives in colonies underground, and compared to other small animals of the same size, they have a remarkable long life. Some of them are now 40 years old, and they don't show any signs of slowing down. There are whales which uh, have lived good evidence more than 100 years, as healthy as ever. And we should talk maybe about some birds too. There's a famous bird in Midway Atoll in the Pacific, an albatross, who had a ring put on her leg in, I think, 1954. Hmm. And she is still active in mating dances and laying eggs once a year at the age of something like 73 or so. And we can learn from that. So not everything in nature needs to age because other creatures have got better age repair mechanisms than humans. And what's really exciting is that we can gradually and then probably more quickly apply some of these repair mechanisms to us as humans. So we can become more like an albatross, in some ways more like a whale. Wouldn't that be great? Uh, let's get back to humans, though. Uh, so we already live longer than, than before. The average life expectancy doubled in the last 200 years, but the increase has slowed down recently. Why, why is that? Have all the low-hanging fruit been picked already or what's going on? It is noticeable that the life expectancy has stopped going up so fast and in some cases has even come down. And partly it's due to lifestyle. You know, we're not living as healthily as we used to. There are in parts of the world lots of deaths of despair, so-called. As people feel disenchanted with their life, they become victims of alcohol abuse or opioid addiction, suicides, Hmm. too much sitting around, not enough exercise. So there are drawbacks there. But more fundamentally, the previous 
methods, the paradigm, if you like, has run out of steam, which was sort of better hygiene, better antibiotics, better vaccinations, better large-scale surgical interventions. That's done wonders. That does mean we live a lot longer than people in previous generations. But we need to go more fundamentally. So it's a different paradigm that's needed. And I can refer back to some of the history of science or, dare I say it, even the history of smartphones. Things don't always progress smoothly. Sometimes things slow down. They get stuck. And then there's a transition to a new paradigm. So when smartphones were introduced, for a long time they weren't particularly successful. They were only of minority interest. But then the smartphones got a lot better and more and more people started using them. And I'm referring to the first generation of smartphones by companies such as Palm or BlackBerry or Symbian and the companies who used our software, such as Nokia, and Motorola, Ericsson and so forth. But the increase in capabilities of these first generation smartphones was eventually significantly overtaken by a new approach, the approach taken by Silicon Valley, which was to use a much bigger much more powerful sort of operating system with modern developer tools. And that didn't go very well for a while. Silicon Valley didn't make good progress in the first experiments it had with mobile phones. But then suddenly, from around the year 2008, 9, 10, it all changed and there was much bigger progress. I'm expecting something similar in the field of reversal of aging. There are new techniques based on biotech, genetic re-engineering, and in due course based on nanotech, and critically taking advantage of AI technologies, which will allow us to do things that were never possible before. And so the slowdown is a prelude to a subsequent speed up. There will be much greater life expectancies before long. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> the podcast is about government and innovation. So in your book, you suggest that governments should declare aging as a disease. That's a surprising uh, request. So why? why? What difference would that make? Governments are in the business of good expenditure. Governments have got to cope with growing budget demands on healthcare. As people live longer, they have more simultaneous diseases and there are bigger and bigger financial calls from health services to look after people who are subject to what's called comorbidities. Now, if we could prevent people from getting into that elderly, infirm state, how much of a benefit would there be, not just from a humanitarian point of view, but also from an economic point of view? This is an argument that's called the longevity dividend. If governments would invest in helping the slowdown of aging, or even better, the defeat of aging, then they would have to spend some money in the short term, but the benefits would be very significant in that hospitals would have many fewer people in them needing repairs. It's a bit like you and I go to the dentist or dental hygienist every so often. We have that good habit, many of us so that early signs of tooth decay or gum disease or the accumulation of plaque can be removed. And that costs a bit of money, 
But it's far better that we spend that small amount of money than we get much more serious problems with our teeth or gums. And by the way, if you have gum disease, it often leads on to brain disease, an even more expensive thing. So government should be prioritizing this aggressive approach to prevention, which is the introduction of these health checks and indeed the treatments to reverse aging. Now, to bring a drug to the market, it's got to target a particular disease or condition. And what myself and my co-author, Jose Luis Cordero, are asking for is that it becomes possible for the approval of drugs whose visible outcome is the reversal of aging. And so we want that uh, possibility, that aging should be medically treatable. And the way we will justify these drugs is they will be connected to, will measure the effect on what's called biomarkers of aging, which is measurements of the strength of your muscles, the strength of your brain, the strength of your immune system. There's a whole bunch of things that you can pick up from blood, from genetics, epigenetics. And the conclusion we want to see is that if people have various drugs or interventions, the biomarker measurements of aging will go down and that should be sufficient for a drug to be approved and gone onto the market and with government sponsorship it should be available for as many people as possible okay that kind of makes um, economic or scientific sense but i'm gonna still push back a little bit like just as intuitively the natural law don't you think that all people have a kind of obligation to die to make room for the next generation? So this is a common thought that's at the back of many of our minds. I believe most of us have got schizophrenic views on aging and death. Part of us in our minds, part of our minds have a strong intuition that aging is terrible and it's an awful thing and we should find ways to stop it. But as we get older, another part of our brain develops, which is sometimes called the wise view, where there are quote marks around wise, which says, yes, we have to accept death. It's for the natural order of things. But, you know, people were told they had to accept death many times in the past. People were told it's sweet and honorable to die for your country. Mm. And now we are much uh, less keen to celebrate the youth of our countries going off to war and fighting. Of course, it's a tragedy and it's good to sort of try and make sense out of a tragedy, but let's push back against what Jose and I call the aging trance or the pro-aging trance or pro-aging myths. So do we need to make space for the next generation? We have plenty of space in this solar system, plenty of space on this earth, especially if we manage large parts of the earth better. I'm talking about our agriculture. Large parts of the planet are given over to growing crops of vegetables, which we then feed to animals, mm, yeah. which we then kill. And there can be huge recovery of land if we grow meat differently, not using sentient animals, but growing meat using uh, biochemical met- methods without any brain being attached, a bit like we brew alcohol in large vats, we can grow meat in this cultivation methods. So that's just one of many ideas that we have plenty of space on the earth for 
more people. What about social structure? Well, we can put rules in place, such as the rule that's already in place in America, that the president can only stay in power for eight years, even though some of the former presidents have been young and fit, like Barack Obama. If he were to run for president again today, he almost certainly would be elected again. But the constitution there says there should be some enforced circulation of uh, power. So we can have rules like that so that people will make room for new generations. So there may be issues in how do we structure society in which there are multiple generations living together, but these are much lesser concerns than the terrible tragedy of people extinguishing. A whole library of experience extinguishes when people die. Um. Yeah, that sounds actually pretty good to me. And uh, when I was reading your book, I was becoming a believer. I don't know if you remember about 10 years ago, we uh, I called you and we had a talk about this this issue. And I was I was very skeptical about the whole thing. But uh, uh, I'm, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid now. However, let's go back and talk about the cost. Uh, you alluded to the economical benefits, but uh, some medical treatments uh, for on an individual level or, or even the treatments... Um, societal level are incredibly ex- expensive. Is, is it just going to be the wealthy elite who can afford to stop aging? And if so, don't you think it's unfair to use taxpayers' money for this kind of research? So often treatments start off expensive and in due course the price comes down. Sometimes the price comes down when patents expire and you can copy somebody else's design without having to pay huge fees. Sometimes the price comes down because we find more effective ways to have the same result. And we can point again to our shared history in the smartphone industry. The low cost of modern mobile phones is astonishing. Of course, you can spend a lot Mm. of money on a smartphone, but you can also spend a lot less money. I recently picked up a smartwatch for the first time. won't go into all the reasons why, Well, my normal ornamental watch that my wife gave me many years ago, the battery unexpectedly stopped. It would take a few weeks to get it repaired. I was on a business trip, so I just bought the cheapest smartwatch in the airport, 50 pounds. It's remarkably good for 50 pounds, all the features in it. I was astonished. So prices can come down. It's not inevitable that prices come down, however. And there are counterexamples in that some medical treatments involving insulin, for example, are sadly a lot more expensive now than in the past. So that's where governments do need to get involved Mm. to ensure that there's an efficient economy. There's a lot the governments have to do here to prevent cartels, to prevent monopolies, to ensure there's a free flow of information, to prevent other market failures and ensure that the price will come down. But generally, we don't say... Let's not do triple bypass heart operations because they're very expensive. We say, well, it is expensive, but there can be great benefits in giving somebody that operation and giving them another possibly 20 years of a healthy life as a result. Very good points there. Okay, so if any of the listeners out there are inspired by what you've been saying, what can they do to help bring about the death of death sooner? What about any personal tips from you, any recommendations for staying staying healthy long enough to benefit from the new rejuvenation treatments that will become available in the future? Well, there's two separate things there. 
There's what can we do to keep ourselves healthy long enough for these new treatments to be available. And as can we bring forward the date in which these treatments will be available. And the latter is what I personally focus on because that will benefit many, many more people. So, of course, I do try to keep myself personally healthy. I practice intermittent fasting, which means five days a week. I have only about 800 calories, whereas the normal recommended intake for a male is more like 2,000 or 2,400 calories. So I have small, four small meals spread around the days, five days a week. And that pushes the body into a kind of repair mode, which uh, has, uh, according to a lot of research, rejuvenation qualities. Uh, I'm not under any illusion. My diet, this 5-2 diet or 2-5 diet, won't let me live to 100 by itself, but it might give me some extra vitality for a few more years. And I have a good social life. I think that's important to live longer. Loneliness is a terrible killer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another terrible killer is sitting too much. You know, sometimes people say sitting is the new smoking. So it is important to take a break from sitting and go for a vigorous walk. So I plug my headset in and I will listen to a podcast or an audiobook for perhaps an hour a day as I walk around. And that keeps me fit and healthy. But even more important than that is bringing forward the date in which we might call longevity escape velocity is possible. And if people want to help with that, first of all, I want to point them to the Dublin Longevity Declaration. That's a website where you can read what a large number of biological scientists have said, that now is the time when government should be investing more in this area, much more than before. And in the past, it was just wishful thinking. Now we can see many treatments at hand. So you can read what these scientists have said on DublinLongevityDeclaration.org. And if you want to add your voice to that, you can sign at the bottom. And you can declare yourself as, I don't know, a podcast listener or a grandparent. Or if you've got some special expertise, you can sign up as an expert. More generally, you can support some of the ongoing projects. And I will just mention the organization of which I have a part-time role as executive director. That's the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation, LEVF. And our website is levf.org, where you'll read about some projects that we are undergoing with mice, mainly. A combination of treatments we're giving to mice in their middle age, which means 19 months old for a mouse, which is roughly 50 years old, comparable for humans. So they've never had any treatments before. And we're giving them combinations of treatments, each of which have been proven through a series of previous experiments by other researchers to extend the remaining lifespan and health span of middle-aged mice. And we're doing them in combinations. And that's proving to be fascinating. There are some very interesting results And if you want to support us in that, you can click on the donate button on that site. Or more generally, you can just learn about the science and the broader philosophical, economical, political arguments that go along with it. And spread the news. Help others. I wouldn't call it Kool-Aid. Help people to understand the actual true science that's involved here. And you can read more about that in The Death of Death. Terrific. That was David Wood, 
The book is The Death of Death, The Scientific Possibility of Physical Immortality and Its Moral Defense. Please go to the websites David just mentioned and to thedeathofdeath.org to watch videos, read testimonials, follow David and Jose around the world, and of course, buy the book. Thank you for visiting Deep Pockets, David. It's been a real pleasure, Petra. You asked great questions. You've listened to Deep Pockets by Petra Söderling. To subscribe for more content like this, go to petrasoderling.com. The wonderful music you heard is by Leroy Jones, an iconic New Orleans Jazz Hall of Fame trumpetist. You can find this and other Leroy Jones tunes at your favorite online or offline music store. Deep Pockets works in cooperation with Maison de la Guse, a quaint bed and breakfast, and Studio Aguse, a boutique recording studio in south of France for audiobooks, podcasts, and music. Stay in the beautiful bed and breakfast Maison while recording your work, assisted by top hospitality and audio technology professionals. Find on Instagram as Studio Aguse, that's A-G-U-Z-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe, like, rate, and share our episodes. It means a lot to me and to my guests. We appreciate your support. Thank you.